Romans chapter 2. All right, man, it's been good to be with you already today. Oh, it's been such a good day. So proud of Emma and uh, just the, everybody, the whole team, and so proud of Michael for, you know, being so repentant over the 49ers like that. I mean, it's so good. So, so good. Man, it's good to be with you today. It really is. Thank you so much for being here. You know, I know it, it takes a lot to get a family here. I know. And uh, thank you for going to the trouble, going to the effort, you know, to, to be here with us today. So it means a lot to us. It really does. So thank you very much for that. And so, yeah, in the book of Romans, continuing our study here, <clears throat> and this letter was written around 55 AD. This is about 20 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. If you kind of use your imagination, the apostles of Jesus are now going all around the world sharing this gospel, this good news. When Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And you just imagine, you know, the, the, you know, the Bible, I'm sorry, church history tells us, you know, Peter went into uh, present-day Turkey. Uh, Bartholomew went into what would be present-day Iran. And I could go on and on, but they went all around the world to share this gospel. And I remember all the years that I was a youth pastor, but also many, many times as a pastor, I was asked a question because people are genuinely concerned about this. It's a great question. You might have experienced this yourself when you're sitting there talking about spiritual things with a a friend or a family member. What is going to happen to all the people who never hear the name of Jesus? What is going to happen? How could a good and loving God condemn someone to hell who's never even heard of him? It's a great question. For being honest, it's an important question. It's not just an important question because it's about the people involved, but it's also an important question about God. If God condemns people who have never heard the name of Jesus, then how could God be righteous? How could he be just? How could he be fair? It reminds me of the question that Abraham asked of God when he knew that God was preparing to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham confronted the angel of the Lord and he said, Doesn't the judge of all the earth Judge with justice. Justice is a big topic in our culture right now. And a lot of people are kind of think, asking this question. Is there going to be an epic miscarriage of justice at the final judgment? And this is the very question that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 2. So our title today is God's Limitless Reach. You're going to be very encouraged today. We're going to start off, it's going to be a little bit philosophical, but then get really kind of practical at the end. I think you're going to leave here today like, really excited about the God that you worship and serve. Romans chapter 2, verse 7. Look at what he says. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he, meaning God, will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. I think something we have to really kind of stop and think about for a moment is that if you had grown up in a, in a Jewish home, in a Jewish culture, but also you're growing up in a Christian culture, you have this knowledge, this understanding that there will come a day that all of us have to stand before our creator and give an account for our lives. That day is coming. It cannot be missed. And I can remember as a child thinking about this, because I grew up in what I call a God-fearing home. 
I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a God-fearing home. And I had this idea, this sense that I was going to have to stand before God someday, give an account for my life. It scared me to death. And so when I was about 14 years old and somebody told me, hey, you can know Jesus as your Savior, not to worry about that anymore, man, I was all in. I really was because I was so afraid of that because I knew what kind of person that I was in my deep heart. Look at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Look at verse 14. So it's kind of the parentheses here. How many of your Bibles have a parentheses there? Yeah, okay. Indeed, when Gentiles, those people who are not Jewish, those people who do not have the Ten Commandments, they don't have Leviticus, they don't have Deuteronomy, okay? They're just kind of winging it out there. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, by the Ten Commandments, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law since they show that the requirements of the law, the Ten Commandments, are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts are now accusing and even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. But Paul is telling us here there are four dynamics. We have four bullet points today. There are four dynamics that address how God is going to deal with the people in the world, regardless of where you live or when you live in history. All right. The first one is this. It's the integrity of God's judgment. We got to talk about this. Now, you might remember times if, and when you were a kid, uh, when a teacher or a parent or a coach showed favoritism. It was unfair. It was unjust. And I'm sure most of you do. Almost nothing makes you angrier than the idea that you're being treated unfairly. And we are seeing our streets fill up with young people because of perceived injustices in the history of the United States. And all those things, you know, just nothing will stoke the fires, you know, the emotions of human passion quite like injustice. I have four kids and uh, I used to, uh, every Sunday, I would put a little insert, you know, sermon notes in every bulletin. So we'd run about 130 bulletins, you know, and I would run that thing and I usually get it done on Sunday mornings. And then I would ask my kids, you know, when they were like, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, all the way up into high school, really, hey, would you come up 15 minutes early on Sunday morning and put the bulletin or put the insert in the bulletin? Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. You know, I can't believe you would ask us. We're like child labor for the church, you know, and you know, we're like slaves for the church. I can't believe that. And I would be like, guys, listen, open the bulletin, take the insert, put it in, close it, move it to the side. That's all you got to do. You got to do that a hundred times. That's, you know, that's all there is to it. Even today, my kids are in their mid twenties. If I bring this up, like, oh, that was so unfair. I can't believe none of the other kids in the church had to do stuff like that. And I just can't believe it. But why do we do this? Because we're so, we're so sensitive to injustice. The idea that life isn't fair, that God isn't fair. Let's be honest. We all have this place, this little pocket you know, where we kind of, you know, stuff in some things that we think, man, God hasn't been fair to me. God hasn't been fair. Look at verses six through eight. God is going to give to each person according to what he has done. There are those who persist in seeking good and glory and immortality. 
And there are those who are self-seeking who reject the truth. And there's going to be wrath and anger, he says, for those people. See, throughout the Bible, God is presented to you and me as a judge. And we are told time and time again, you and I are going to be held accountable for our actions and our attitudes. That God is going to impartially judge every man and woman regardless of background. Why? How? Because he sees the heart. He sees the heart. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, It matters very little to me what any man thinks of me. I don't even value my opinion of myself, he says. That doesn't justify me before God. My only true judge is God himself. And when the Lord comes, he will bring to light all that is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the secret motives of men's hearts. And then he will give each man his share of praise. Now, the Bible never, never suggests that men can earn eternal life by doing good works. But those who trust God for eternal life, those who seek immortality, Paul is saying, they will do good works. And the question Paul is kind of bringing out here is like, what do you really want out of life? If you're persistent in doing good, seeking glory and immortality, this is because you are a worshiper of God. And if honoring God is what you want above anything else, you're going to find your way to Jesus, or to put it another way, Jesus will find his way to you, as we're going to see in a moment. But what do you really want? You know, if your whole life is bent upon seeking wealth and fame and power and prosperity, you're not, worshiper, you're not a worshiper of God, you're a worshiper of yourself. You want to be the center of things. You want everybody thinking of you. You want everybody looking at you. You want everybody serving you. And if that's you, then God warns that there's going to be wrath and anger. Your nationality, your ancestry, your parents, your, your charitable giving, your church attendance, none of that is going to matter. God will judge all of us based upon our heart's response to truth. Number two bullet point is the intensity of God's justice. Look at verses 9 through 13 of Romans chapter 2. He said, everybody who does evil, there's going to be distress. But he says, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Then he goes on to say, all who sin apart from the law are going to perish apart from the law. Those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, he's saying, you Jewish folks who are reading this letter, you're much more accountable to God because you have more truth. You have more of what's been revealed to you about what God expects than the average Greek or Roman or Scythian or someone like that. And this is an aspect of God's judgment that kind of surprises some people, that God's judgment is not the same for everyone. There's not a one-size-fits-all judgment experience. And the intensity of God's judgment varies with the knowledge of God that people are exposed to. Notice he says, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God's judgment of you and me is going to be weighted against our knowledge of him. We have grown up in a nation that has been extremely blessed. I mean, I realize we don't pray in school anymore. We don't read our Bible in school anymore. But let's be honest. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, what God expects of man, it is just permeating our society. And so there is much more on the line for you and for me than, say, somebody who grew up in, you know, North Korea or Senegal or someplace like that. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus had sent his disciples out, and they were preaching this gospel. And he says that the, 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is a parable Jesus spoke. He said, the servant, the, the servant knew what his master wanted him to do, but he did not make himself ready or try to do what his master wanted. So that servant will be punished much. But what about the servant who does not know what his master wants? He also does the things that deserve punishment. He will get less punishment than the servant who knew what he should do. Whoever has been given much will be responsible for much. Much more will be expected from the one who has been given more. So yes, what Uncle Ben said to Spider-Man came straight out of the pages of Scripture. Those of you who've seen Spider-Man know what I'm talking about. You know, Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person anywhere in the Bible. He He spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. And I believe this is because he understood just how much this particular group of people had been given. The people living in first century Israel, Jewish and Gentile, were history's most privileged people. Why? Because like we said in communion a moment ago, God became flesh and walked among them. I can't imagine seeing the miracles, hearing the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the apostles, but the preaching of the Son of God, and then rejecting it. But that is exactly what some people did. Look at this, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus criticized the cities where he did most of his miracles, the Bible says. And he said, it's going to be bad for you, Chorazin. It's going to be bad for you, Bethsaida. I did many miracles in your, in your towns. If these same miracles had happened in Tyre and Sidon, those were Gentile cities. Those were not you know, Jewish communities. The people would have changed their lives a long time ago. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be worse for you than for Tyre and Sidon. And Capernaum, will you be lifted up to heaven? No. You'll be thrown down to the place of death. I did many miracles in Capernaum. And if these same miracles had happened in Sodom, the people there would have stopped sinning and it would still be a city today. I think it's significant because it shows us that God's judgment is proportional. It's not exactly the same for everyone. And God judges people according to what they do know, not according to what they do not know. But the one who deliberately rejects is in a completely different category from one who doesn't know it all. Number three is this. It's the insight of the heart of man. I want to show you a picture real quick. Some of you all know this guy in this picture. Uh, this uh, family, this is a guy named Brady Herbert who grew up in Borger and uh, known him for a while. Brady was a pastor in Waco for a long time. And his wife next to him, his name is Becca. And uh, she's from the Houston area. And she grew up in a home that, you know, they, they, they had no... No uh, grounding at all in anything having to do with the Lord. None at all. And so Becca, this family went camping in Colorado when she was a teenager. And she's sitting on a mountainside, she says, and she tells this story so beautifully. And I told the youth this this summer. She's sitting on a mountainside. She got swept up in the beauty of the mountains and the valley. And she had a thought. Something this beautiful could not just happen by accident. And if this is not an accident, there must be a creator. And if someone would create something so beautiful, they must be good. And if they are that good, then they must also be loving. So there must be a loving God. If there is a loving God, then he must love me. And so she gets back to Houston on Monday morning, and she had a friend that she knew was a Christian. And she said, hey, I was in Colorado camping, and I believe in God now. (laughs) And can you show me how I can know God? And so this friend led her to the Lord, you know, led her to Jesus right there in the hallway of her school. 
It's just an awesome story how the creation led her to understanding God. And at the beginning of this letter, Paul lays out two forces, very powerful forces that are at work in everyone's life that lead us to God. First one he says is the creation. Absolutely. Look at that. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter one, Paul said, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. You look at the world we live in, it's inconceivable that this kind of power, intricacy, harmony, and beauty could just happen by accident. It could only happen by means of a master designer, a prime mover, a creator. And the person who chooses to deny a creator, Paul says, is willfully denying the obvious. But then look at verse 14. Paul says there's also, there's the creation, but there's also the conscience. He says in verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they don't have the Ten Commandments, they don't have Leviticus, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Deep, what he's trying to say here is this, deep within the heart of man, there is a consciousness of their creator and the sense of what he requires. People who have never heard the Bible, who've never seen the Ten Commandments, there's still an accountability there. They are subject to judgment of one kind because God put that there in their conscience. People in every culture, in every time in history, have a code of right and wrong. It's a morality. Paul's not saying that it's perfect, but it is enough to make people accountable to God. Back in World War II, there was a professor at Oxford named C.S. Lewis, and he was asked by the British government to address the British people by radio. And he gave a series of lectures to prove the existence of God because the people there, the, the, the leaders of the nation understood, man, our people are wavering because they don't want, they, they, they've kind of lost their belief in God because the Nazis are so evil and people are asking themselves, how is it the Nazis keep winning? They're so bad and we keep losing and when we're pretty good. And they're like, is there a God? And so his very first lecture, he spoke about man's belief in right and wrong, good and evil, and the universality of it, and said, this is evidence for God. And these lectures were later on transcribed into a book we call Mere Christianity. And this is what he wrote in chapter one. He said, if anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Hindus, the Chinese, the Greeks, and the Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle. <laughs> Think about that. You know, we always admire courage. We never admire fear and cowardice. Why is that? Where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. And that's so true. If you were Hindu, if you were Buddhist, if you were uh, you know, Islamic, no matter what, yes, put others first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. 
it seems then we are forced to believe in a real right or wrong. Whenever someone who doesn't believe in God says something like, that's not right, that's not fair, that's an, that's an injustice, they were revealing the fact that they have a moral law that's encoded basically in their DNA that tells them something is right, something is wrong. And if someone says, well, I can't believe in a God who would allow so much evil, where did you come up with this idea that some things are evil, some things are good? Darwin never taught you that. That never came from Darwinian evolution, the survival of the fittest. It never came from there. How did you come up with that idea? If you're just a product of spontaneous generation and evolution, nothing's good or evil. It just is what it is, right? But if you have a moral law, you must ask yourself why you have one. Why do you care if anything is right or wrong, good or evil? And Paul says we have a moral law within ourselves because we are created by a moral God. And if someone believes that some things are right and some things are wrong, it's because God put it there. And that person then becomes accountable to God, the God who put it there, for doing what they know is right or wrong. And the last thing is this. This is pretty fun is the intervention of God's messengers. The intervention of God's messengers. Now, all my life, especially growing up, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. There's a big emphasis on, on, on the work of missionaries. And I'm so grateful for that. Now, I've always heard missionaries talk about this thing called the 1040 window. The African and Asian continents from 10 degrees south up to 40 degrees north, you see the most unreached area of the world. This is the most non-Christian area of the world. And billions of people, who have never heard the gospel, or so I thought. So in my seminary days, years ago, I was there, I was in my, I was there reading, and I got so tired, you know, I was, I was like, man, I need a break. And so I start walking around my library in my seminary, and there's a little museum attached. So I go in the museum, and there are all these artifacts from these archaeological digs in what was called the Nestorian Church, the Nestorian Church. And it was a church in China. And I was like, what is this? I needed a break from reading, but I had to keep reading. You know, I was like, man, what is this? I was blown away. Listen to this. This is going to encourage you so much. Christianity was thriving in China and all through the Middle East in 600 AD. I had no idea. Nestorian Christianity was named after the Bishop of Constantinople, which is in present-day Turkey. Now cities called Istanbul. But in Istanbul, there was a bishop there named Nestorius. And he had a great zeal for missionary work. And so he began to build into his students this idea that we need to reach the world with the gospel. And so Nestorius, Nestorian was Persian. He was what we call Iranian today. And early Christianity was uh, thriving among the Armenian people, the Kurdish people, the Persian people, the Arab people. And so you see up on the map, this is the extent of what was called the the Church of the East, or the Nestorian Church. They went all the way out into China, and they sent missionaries across Central Asia, Mongolia, China, India, even into Siberia. Incredible. And specifically, the Church of Baghdad. Let your mind wrap around that for a moment, okay? The Church of Baghdad was the centerpiece of this great missionary movement toward what they called the ends of the world. They were sending missionaries out everywhere to 
This was happening from around 400 AD to around uh, 800 AD. There's about a 400-year window there. And for centuries, Christianity prospered. And it was the dominant religion of the Mongolian Empire, the Mongol Empire. Three of Genghis Khan's wives were Christian. Imagine that. Churches filled 100 cities in China around 1000 AD. There were more Christians in the Middle East and Asia in 1000 AD than in Europe. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Marco Polo, when he traveled the Far East from 1271 to 1295, he mentions visiting hundreds of churches in all of his travels across the Far East. You can see the ruins of those churches today. Sometimes Google images, you know, the, the abandoned churches of Armenia. They're beautiful, beautiful old buildings that are just in rubble now. It's amazing. What happened? Why, where'd they go? <laughs> About 1350 AD, certain warlords in the Mongolian Empire and also in Arabia began converting to Islam and they declared a jihad against the Christians. And according to historians, Islamic warlords slaughtered Christians in huge numbers all across the Middle East and Mongolia. And in China, the churches began to lose their way theologically, and the, the, uh, the clergy began to become very loose and liberal in their theology and their morals, and the church in China eventually just faded away. It's a great lesson for America. And the reason I tell you this, that this just blew me away. The most unreachable region of the world, I've been told all my life, was at one time the very heart of Christianity. And the lesson I learned that day was this. The gospel can move farther and faster than I have ever dreamed. And if the gospel is wanted somewhere in the world, God will not fail to get it there. So we have this idea, well, is God going to send someone to hell who's never heard the gospel? Let me say this one more time. If there's somewhere in the world, someone who wants the gospel, God will not fail to get it to them. Look what he says in verse 16. He said, this is going to take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. One more time. It's worth saying, God knows the secrets of men's hearts. He knows the secrets of your heart. He knows the secrets of my heart. And we can be certain of this. God knows where people will receive the message of Jesus, and he will not fail to get it to them. I don't know if you ever knew the largest gathering of human beings in human history. But in 1973, Billy Graham was invited to hold an evangelistic crusade in Seoul, South Korea. Listen to this. On one day, 1.1 million people came to hear Billy Graham share the gospel. It's the largest human gathering ever in human history. And it wasn't because of a politician, a king, or an emperor. It was a preacher from North Carolina. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? 75,000 people accepted Christ on that, during that crusade. It's a city, a city of people. And the largest church in the world is still in South Korea. 800,000 people gather every week for worship at a church in Seoul, South Korea. Did you know that now South Korea is sending missionaries to America? It's amazing. I remember David Robinson, who played for the San Antonio Spurs. He was led to Christ by a South Korean missionary. Incredible. 
God offered his own son for the salvation of mankind. And when one looks at this, when one looks at this objectively, you ask yourself, does God's willingness to reach anyone have any limits? No. He is relentless in his passion to reach anyone who wants to hear the message, who wants to be saved. By the way, the fastest growing, not the biggest church, but the fastest growing Christian movement in the world today is in Iran, where Christianity is illegal, but also in China, where Christianity is illegal. But right now, as many as one million Iranians are in Christian community in house churches, and many of those are being led by women. And in many Muslim cultures, unlike our Western culture, dreams are taken very seriously. And Iranians are coming to Christ in huge numbers because they're saying that Jesus appeared to them and spoke to them in their dreams, saying, come to me or seek out this person or that person who they know to be a missionary, a Christian missionary. Listen to this. 27% of the people who have been coming to Christ in Iran are saying that they did so because they had visions of Jesus in their dreams telling them to do it. Man. And no one knows exactly how many are there, but the missionaries there are being overwhelmed by the numbers of people who are seeking them out, wanting to know more about this Jesus. You might say, that's a miracle. You know what? Is it even a bigger miracle? That there are Christians living in Iran undercover with one purpose. They've left everything behind. They put their lives in danger in order to share the message of salvation in Jesus. Incredible to think about. It really is. Now, there are some people out there who like to use this hypothetical situation to try to criticize Christianity. What about the person in the deepest, darkest jungle who's never going to hear the gospel? What about the person in a country where Christianity is illegal, who never never gets a chance to hear? The portrait of God that you see in the Bible is of a father who's desperately seeking to save his children a God who is constantly working miracles, intervening all over the world and moving in the hearts of his people to go to the outer reaches of the earth, no matter where it might be, looking for every opportunity to bring truth to a life. And this is in Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at this. As certainly as I'm alive and living, declares the Lord, I receive no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Instead, my pleasure is that the wicked repent from their behavior and live Turn back, turn back, all of you. Why do you have to die? You see, there's so much hope for the people we don't necessarily believe are hearing about Jesus. And I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to be so surprised at all the people that we might not have understood were hearing about Jesus, but they actually were by means that we never never thought possible. This is why John said in Revelation chapter 5, when he saw a vision of heaven, he said, they, all, the, all of God's people, sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God every persons from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And the message is this, no matter who you are, where you are, or when you are, God will find a way. And if anyone wants the truth, God will get it to them. You say, what about the lost tribes in the Amazon who've never seen anyone? I can rest knowing that the God who goes to such lengths to save humanity is going to judge them fairly on that day. Absolutely.
we could just bow our heads together this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask you to consider this today. We talk about the links that God is going to to reach people all over the world. And there are great, great links that God has gone to to reach you. To reach you. And you may be here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior. And as you saw with Emma this morning, Jesus said, if you, must, you must become like little children to just trust me, to just fall into my arms and say, Jesus, would you save me? That's what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to have a new life in Christ, to just trust Jesus as your Savior. And this morning, if you would just go to Jesus and just say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've rebelled and walked away from you. Would you please forgive me? Because Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. And you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And if you would just say that, that's the posture of your heart. Because God knows the secrets. If that's the posture of your heart, you would be forever saved. The other thing I want us to think about this morning is that if it's ever entered into your heart that God has been unfair, that God's been unfair to me. Somebody else has it so much better. Somebody else has so much more. God's been unfair to me. I hope that you can see in this page of scripture here that God is completely just. And God is always working. And what we might perceive as an injustice is really God doing a great, great work. And so this morning, if you've ever believed that God is being unfair, that God is being unjust, Go before him this morning and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for ever believing that you would ever be unjust in the way that you deal with me. And so this morning, I'll be quiet for a moment. You might need to ask Jesus to be your savior here today. You might need to go before the Lord and just confess, Lord, I'm, 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 please forgive me for ever believing that you might have been unjust. Whatever that might be, wherever the spirit might lead you this morning, I want to be quiet for a moment. Let's just go before the Lord and just share our heart with him today. Hmm. Father, I just want to come before you this morning. I just want to thank you so much, Lord, as I look back upon my life. Lord, at all the things that you did to reach me. I think about all the relationships, all the circumstances, Lord, how you pursued me. Lord, I know there are people here today that perhaps for the first time in their life, they realize how, how hotly you have pursued them, how relentlessly you have pursued them, pursued their very heart. And I just pray, Jesus, that today might be that day that they would just put their full faith and trust in you for their salvation. And Father, if there's anybody here today who's just struggled with understanding, Father, who you are, how you work, and Lord, just your justice, your fairness. I pray, Jesus, that today would be the day that they would see that, that you are relentless, Father, and loving us and growing us and maturing us and just doing for us all that we need to enjoy eternity with you. So, Lord, we just love you so much today. Just pray, Father, that you would just use us to bring you glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.